Welcome to the December 29th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, we discuss involvement of IL-13 and IL-4 signaling in fibrotic progression of myelofibrosis. Next, we review results on a novel agent using VWF-dependent mechanisms to lyse pathological thrombi in acute ischemic stroke. Finally, we'll shed new light on findings that implicate the GARP-TGF-beta-1 pathway in the loss of natural killer cell cytotoxicity in relapsed AML. The first research article is entitled, IL-13-IL-4 Signaling Contributes to Fibrotic Progression of the Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, by Johanna Mello Cardenas of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and colleagues. A key feature of myelofibrosis is a chronic inflammatory state characterized by high levels of circulating cytokines. Furthermore, we know that specific cytokines can fuel progression in myelofibrosis. A case in point is transforming growth factor, or TGF-beta, which is frequently elevated in myelofibrosis, and has been established as an important contributor to the disease. Inflammatory signaling in myelofibrosis promotes megakaryopoiesis through increased expression of megakaryocytic genes. However, there are few studies looking specifically at the role of inflammatory cytokines directly on megakaryocytes. Levels of some circulating cytokines in myelofibrosis are reduced by treatment with JAK inhibitors. However, the effect of JAK inhibitor therapy is often short-lived. With prolonged treatment, the effect on cytokines is relatively modest, and some cytokines have been shown to persist despite JAK inhibitor treatment. Among these is IL-13, an immunoregulatory cytokine that plays a part in fibrosis, as has been shown in studies of solid organs. Yet to date, there are limited data regarding the role of IL-13 specifically in bone marrow fibrosis. Accordingly, Melo Cardenas and co-authors focused on the role of IL-13 in fibrotic disease progression and sought to identify factors that promote megakaryopoiesis and fibrosis. The authors analyzed changes in the cytokine profiles in murine models of myelofibrosis before and after development of fibrosis, coupled with analysis of bone marrow populations by single-cell RNA sequencing. In these murine models, IL-13 promoted growth of mutant megakaryocytes, induced surface expression of TGF-beta, and stimulated collagen synthesis. These observations were validated in megakaryocytes differentiated from CD34-positive cells and in plasma samples from patients with myelofibrosis, where levels of IL-13 were likewise elevated. Investigators also found increased expression of the IL-13 receptor on megakaryocytes, as well as the ability of IL-13 to increase levels of phosphorylated STAT6. IL-13 and IL-4 mediate intracellular signaling through a shared receptor, IL-4 receptor alpha which mediates signaling through heterodimerization with IL-13 receptor alpha-1, or the common gamma chain. JAK2 mutated mice overexpressing IL-13 showed features of early bone marrow fibrosis with increased active TGF-beta. Conversely, mice with a knockout of IL-4 receptor alpha exhibited reduced bone marrow fibrosis, decreased spleen weights in MIPL mutated mice, as well as prolonged survival, findings with disease relevance for human myelofibrosis. Using single-cell RNA sequencing data from both prefibrotic and fibrotic bone marrow in both JAK2 and MIPL mutated mice, they found that mast cells and T-cells were increased in the fibrotic compared to the prefibrotic stage. 
These cells showed higher expression of IL-13 compared to myeloid cells. However, they were not able to test if eradicating mast cells reduced the fibrotic phenotype. Taken together, these results reveal that IL-13, IL-4 signaling in myelofibrosis is an important pathway driving fibrotic progression through megakaryocyte expansion and increased TGF-beta. In their accompanying commentary, Jonas Jutze of the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Anne Mullally of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute cite the strong translational potential of these findings. They point toward lebrachizumab, an anti-IL-13 monoclonal antibody currently in clinical trials for allergic diseases, and dupilumab, a monoclonal antibody approved for eczema, asthma, and other diseases. Dupilumab targets IL-4 receptor alpha, thus inhibiting the signaling of IL-4 and IL-13. However, it's unclear that targeting this single pathway would be impactful in myelofibrosis, a disease in which inflammatory cytokines are profoundly dysregulated. Therefore, combining JAK inhibitors and blockade of IL-13-IL-4 may be a more compelling approach to test in clinical trials. For now, Jutsi and Mullally say, the present study makes it clear that by blocking IL-13, it may be possible to untangle this cytokine's pathological partnership with TGF-beta which could slow or even reverse pathologic marrow fibrosis. Let's next discuss the brief report entitled VWF-Targeted Thrombolysis to Overcome RHTPA Resistance in Experimental Thrombotic Stroke Models by Mark V.A. Van Morsel of Utrecht University and Target Biopharmaceuticals in Utrecht, the Netherlands, and colleagues. For decades, thrombolysis with recombinant human tissue plasminogen activator, or RHTPA, has been the mainstay for treatment of patients with acute ischemic stroke. In fact, RHTPA remains the only approved therapy in this setting. Treatment with RHTPA improves functional outcomes and reduces morbidity when given in a timely fashion. However, RHTPA is not perfect. Some thrombi are resistant to RHTPA. The efficacy of treatment is less than 35% in terms of survival in the absence of disability. In addition, the treatment itself can induce bleeding or hemorrhagic transformation, with a persistent risk of intracranial bleeding of 7%. It's also worth noting that RHTPA requires fibrin binding for plasminogen activation. There has been an assumption that fibrin is always available to bind in the thrombi that lead to acute ischemic stroke. However, recent research challenges this assumption. In experimental models, the core of thrombi are fibrin-rich, while the shell reaching the vessel lumen is fibrin-poor. Furthermore, the fibrin content of thrombectomized thrombi in histopathologic examinations is quite variable. Collectively, such findings might help explain the limited efficacy of RHTPA. Thus, there's been a search for treatments that target thrombus components other than fibrin, which could be effective in the treatment of acute ischemic stroke. Some lines of research have focused on von Willebrand factor, or VWF, which is critical to thrombus formation. In preclinical models of acute ischemic stroke, degrading VWF by administration of ADAM-TS13 reduced cerebral lesion volume. However, this strategy has limited applicability in acute ischemic stroke since ADAM-TS13 can't degrade fibrin. The focus of this article, then, is on microlyse a novel thrombolytic agent that requires VWF for activation of plasminogen. 
This agent is a polypeptide that joins a VWF-targeting nanobody with the catalytic domain of urokinase plasminogen activator. Once it binds VWF, localized plasminogen activation ensues. In a preclinical model of thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, microlyse was effective and did not increase bleeding risk. And now, Van Morsel and co-authors report a direct comparison of microlyse to RHTPA in randomized, blinded mouse models of acute ischemic stroke. They used different experimental triggers to induce thrombosis in the middle cerebral artery, or MCA. Of note, they looked at two different mouse models, one fibrin-rich, one platelet-rich. In previous research, looking at reduction of ischemic stroke volumes, the fibrin-rich model was sensitive to RHTPA, as might be expected. By contrast, the platelet-rich model was resistant to RHTPA and sensitive to ADAMTS13, or in other words, was VWF-dependent. In the fibrin-rich model of acute ischemic stroke, the performance of microlyse was non-inferior to that of RHTPA, according to investigators. Spontaneous cortical reperfusion level 10 minutes after therapy was a mean of 15.6% in vehicle-treated mice, compared to 39.3% after microlyse administration and 35.8% after RHTPA administration. All mice showed full MCA recanalization 24 hours after administration. In addition, both agents significantly reduced cerebral lesion volumes versus vehicle at 24 hours. One mouse in the RHTPA group had intracerebral hemorrhage. In the platelet-rich stroke model, microlyse was superior to that of RHTPA. Spontaneous reperfusion 10 minutes after treatment was a mean of 10.1% in vehicle-treated mice. Comparable reperfusion was measured after RHTPA or microlyse administration, 7.6% and 16.3% respectively, which were not statistically different from vehicle. MCA recanalization was observed in only 62% of microlyse-treated mice versus 92% of RHTPA-treated mice, which was significantly higher. However, cerebral lesion volumes were significantly lower for microlyse versus vehicle, while there was no significant difference for RHTPA versus vehicle. In this model, no intracerebral hemorrhage was detected for either treatment. In an accompanying commentary, Frank W.G. Liebig of Erasmus MC University Medical Center Rotterdam, the Netherlands, said this novel approach of VWF-associated plasminogen activation is a promising thrombolytic option that deserves further study. Liebig said more research is needed to explore the variability in treatment response seen with microlyse. And given the heterogeneous composition of thrombi in ischemic stroke, histopathologic studies would be warranted to illustrate how the outcomes correlate with the specific fibrin and VWF composition. Although microlyse in this study did not provoke bleeding, the major side effect of treatment with RHTPA, further research is needed to assess its safety and the risk of hemorrhagic transformation. The final research article this week is entitled GARP-Mediated Active TGF-Beta-1 Induces Bone Marrow NK Cell Dysfunction in AML Patients with Early Relapse Post-Allo-HSCT by Dongyao Wang of the University of Science and Technology of China and Anhui China and colleagues. AML remains a challenging and aggressive hematologic malignancy with substandard outcomes. Relapse of AML after transplantation remains common and is linked to an especially poor prognosis. It is known that the propensity of AML to relapse is linked to the ability of the leukemic cells to escape immune surveillance. 
That casts a spotlight on natural killer, or NK cells, which play a critical part in cancer surveillance, but can lose their killer instinct, so to speak. Several recent studies have shown that the ability of AML cells to evade immune surveillance is related to downregulation of AML cell killing by NK cells following allogeneic transplantation. This study by Wang and colleagues shines a spotlight on TGF-beta-1, which serves a key function in the regulation of immune responses, as active TGF-beta-1 may inhibit effector functions of NK cells. Blockade of the TGF-beta-1 pathway is a potential target for restoring anti-tumor immunity. The study also provides insights on TGF-beta-1 in relation to GARP, or glycoprotein A repetitions predominant. This type 1 transmembrane cell surface docking receptor is highly expressed on cells including platelets and activated regulatory T-cells. GARP has been shown to play a role in regulating the activation of latent TGF-beta-1. With this background, Wang and co-authors sought to study mechanisms of TGF-beta-1 activation in the bone marrow of AML patients who relapsed following allogeneic transplantation. They looked specifically at how TGF-beta-1 may be inducing dysfunction in bone marrow NK cells. They also evaluated inhibition of TGF-beta-1 signaling as a means to restoring NK cell anti-tumor activity in this setting. Investigators found that levels of active TGF-beta-1 were significantly increased in the bone marrow of patients with early relapse of AML, as compared to patients without relapse. This raised the question of how increased levels of active TGF-beta-1 impact the function of NK cells in the bone marrow. The authors found that active TGF-beta-1 significantly suppressed mTORC1 activity, mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, and the proliferation and cytotoxicity of bone marrow NK cells. Next, investigators focused on GARP, given its role in activating latent TGF-beta-1 in AML. They found that in the bone marrow of patients with relapsed AML, GARP-positive CD4-positive T-cells were more abundant than in patients without relapse. In addition, cytotoxicity of bone marrow NK cells was significantly reduced when they were pre-treated with latent TGF-beta-1 in the presence of GARP-overexpressing CD4-positive T-cells. These findings set the stage to study inhibition of TGF-beta-1 signaling, and whether this would restore anti-tumor activity in patients with relapsing AML. In particular, they studied the effects of galanisertib, an oral small molecule inhibitor of the TGF-beta receptor 1 kinase, as well as anti-TGF-beta 1 antibodies. They found that inhibition of TGF-beta 1 at least partially restored the anti-leukemic activity of bone marrow NK cells. Specifically, in a leukemia mouse xenograft model, blocking the TGF-beta-1 signal improved the anti-tumor activity of NK cells. In an accompanying commentary, Sina Kim and Jaybok Choi of the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis cite the study's key insights into the role of NK cells in AML relapse and the potential role of pharmacologic inhibition of the GARP-TGF-beta-1 pathway using small molecule inhibitors and anti-TGF-beta-1 antibodies. Kim and Choi caution that some information gaps need to be addressed. For example, since TGF-beta-1 signaling also suppresses alloreactive T-cells, it would be important to examine the status of allogeneic T-cells in the marrow of patients with relapsed AML. TGF-beta-1 also contributes to T-regulatory cell differentiation and functions. Targeting TGF-beta-1 may therefore negatively affect the ability of these cells to suppress alloreactive T-cells, resulting in increased graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD. In contrast, cytotoxicity of donor NK cells against GVHD-causing alloreactive T-cells is associated with GVHD reduction. 
Thus, it remains to be determined if targeting TGF-beta-1 signaling after transplant will ultimately tip the balance in favor of more or less GVHD. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.